0: Well, good morning. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at Hillside. And like Daniel said and Katie said, we're so glad you're here. We really are uh, absolutely delighted. One of the many perks of studying at UC Davis is hanging out on the quad during spring quarter. And as every ag will know, the, the quad is an enormous square campus park. Really, it's sort of the capital Mall of UC Davis, and it is beautiful, especially in the spring when the sun is bright and the clouds are white and puffy and the grass is green. And after picking up lunch at the Coho, maybe a burrito or pizza or a rice bowl, lots and lots of Aggies head out to the quad to eat, hang out with friends, uh, and play Frisbee and spike ball. It's just a lot of fun. And the Quad often has a buzz to it because in addition to being the epicenter for huge events like Picnic Day and the Whole Earth Festival, which attract thousands of people to Davis, it's also the venue for concerts and speeches. I remember hearing the folk duo, the Indigo Girls at UC Davis back in the 80s. Some of you will remember them. I also remember a mind-bending speech by Governor Brown that I've actually never forgotten. Very interesting. But in my memory, the visitor who created the most buzz during my undergraduate years on the quad was neither a musician nor a politician. In fact, he wasn't even someone famous. Rather, he was a little-known open-air evangelist and apologist named Cliff Kinnickley who came to the UCD campus in 1988. He'd been invited by InterVarsity, one of the many great campus ministries at UC Davis, to give open-air talks on the gospel. And he had a real simple format. After being introduced by a student leader, Kinnickley would give maybe a seven-minute sort of -of back-of-the-envelope presentation of the gospel with a few punchy reasons why it was true, and after that, he would invite the crowd, and the crowd could be really quite large. He'd ask the crowd to ask him any question about what he just shared, because that's really what he was into. He wanted the dialogue and the discussion, and the crowd would, and you could just guess the kind of tough questions people fired at him. How do you know that Jesus even existed? Or, don't you know that the scriptures aren't reliable? Or, how can Christian, Christianity be true when science has shown us that all life is an accident, at which point, Kinectly would give an answer? And this guy was remarkable in his capacity to explain and defend Christianity, always in a, in a crisp and clear way. and a respectful way. He took every question fired at him seriously, and this guy was able to offer a smart response. Well, despite themselves, people were intrigued, and it was like my fellow Gen X Aggies had never heard what they were hearing, that Christianity was good news and it was grounded in good reasons. And despite their you know, skeptical, hard-boiled selves, they were captivated. And even though this was 33 years ago, I still remember the thrill of that week. And I remember the distinct buzz around the quad and the campus when Caneckley was there during those days, uh, him speaking openly and confidently about the gospel, and it really was like a fresh, invigorating wind was blowing through the campus, and many people, even the skeptics, felt it on their faces. And I share that memory with you because it's the closest experience I've had to what's described in Luke chapters four through nine. Those chapters describe the Galilean phase of Jesus's ministry, the early phase between his testing in the desert and his decision to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his life's work. His God-given calling to restore God's reign over planet Earth through his own death and resurrection. You see, in this period of his ministry, Jesus storms through Galilee like nobody ever had and like nobody has since, leaving not a wake of destruction like Hurricane Ida did just a couple of weeks ago tragically, but rather a wake of wisdom and welcome, and healing. You could say that in Luke 4 through 9, Jesus takes Galilee by storm, which is the name of our fall series as well as the companion series, or companion study, that we're going to be doing in our home groups this fall. Again, this phase of Jesus' ministry captured in these chapters, it's just thrilling. And throughout this section, if you read it, you'll recognize this, Luke nearly exhausts language in trying to describe the excitement that Jesus generates through his God is coming back pronouncements and parables and his incredible displays of power and even his socializing, which made quite a buzz. And over and over again in these six chapters, these words pop up over and over again. Astonishment, amazement, marveling, and and awe. And like Caneckley on the UC Davis quad, but about a million times more, Jesus just blows through Galilee, leaving everyone breathless with excitement. Well... In Galilee by Storm, our series, the one that we're launching today, we're going to get to do something exciting. We're going to get to relive that whirlwind tour together, that hurricane of healing and teaching and including. Now, as dramatic as they are, the Gospels can sometimes be a little bit tricky to interpret, especially the first three. So question that might arise in our minds is, why should we apply ourselves to them? Why should we take 10 weeks to, uh, to immerse ourselves in them when we have the, the far more straightforward epistles? And I want to give you three reasons why the Gospels are really important and why we need them. And here's the first one. Because we need to be reminded of the kingdom core of Christianity. I really hope this sinks in, what I'm going to share with you right now. One of the greatest challenges for everyone involved in Christianity in some way, either as a disciple, many of us here are disciples trying to learn the way of Jesus and live it, or as a spiritual investigator, somebody who's just trying to learn about Christianity to figure out whether she or he might want to pursue it. But one of the challenges that we all have is to keep straight in our own minds what Christianity is basically all about. Well, the four Gospels, the four big biographies of Jesus of Nazareth that stand at the head of the New Testament and that provide the climax of the story told in the Old Testament, these four Gospels, get this, most clearly express what Christianity is basically all about. Christianity is fundamentally about living into the Creator's rescue of His world, a rescue that He accomplished through His own Son's power of evil defeating death on the cross. Christianity is all about aligning ourselves first through faith, just as simple trust in what God has done for us in Jesus, and then subsequently through faith uh, in the sense of, of loyal living in the power of the Spirit, aligning ourselves with what God has done in His Son to finally secure His world. And all the other important ideas that we get from the Bible, not least of all, important ideas we get from important books like Romans and Ephesians about being saved by grace through faith, all those important ideas, they fall best under the big idea of new creation, of God's kingdom having finally come. The big idea that the world despite appearances, has finally been restored to the benevolent rule of the one who made it. And the four Gospels are emphatic that the purpose of Jesus was to restore God's reign over this world, thus paving the way for all things to be renewed, include us, including us and our own physical bodies, for planet Earth itself to be fixed so that God and his beloved human beings could enjoy it forever and ever. See, this is actually kind of a hard thing to get, and I'm hoping it lands right now. The healings, the exuberant meals that Jesus engaged in throughout his three-year ministry, and and especially his whirlwind tour of Galilee, which we're zeroing in on this fall, those things, those healings, those meals, those celebrations— those things weren't just arbitrary signs or proofs of Jesus' divine identity, or they weren't just confirmation of his message. Get this. They were the thing itself. They were creation being fixed. They were God's kingdom rule being restored. Well, by immersing ourselves in the Gospels, I mean, really reading them and rereading them with all the talk they contain about Yahweh finally coming back to his people and all the talk they contain about the kingdom of God and all the remarkable stories they contain uh, of, of tragedies turned into triumphs, you know what we do when we read those stories? We inscribe that story into our own imaginations. It becomes more and more a part of our own spiritual operating system, and the result of that is that we can more effectively and joyfully live into it. That's the first reason we need the Gospels. We need to be reminded of what it's basically all about, and it's kingdom core. What's the second reason? I love this. We need them because we need mentoring in how to live as true sons and daughters of God. Part and parcel of living into the new world that came to be born through Jesus' work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne of the world, part of living into that is living like a true son or daughter of the king of that world. Learning to live as someone, get this, who will inherit that world and who will be called upon to assist in governing it. In fact, that's the point of life. To be the human being that God imagined that we would be when he dreamt us up. We have Sort of a running joke in our family. Whenever one of the boys asks me about why somebody out in the world does something, you know, kind of boorish or uh antisocial, I always respond the same way by saying, Hey, you know, it's because that person does not know the purpose of life. I say that over and over again. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, somebody having spray painted one of the signs at the Lafayette Reservoir or Somebody actively, actively working to get themselves kicked out of a 6th grade class at Pleasant Hill Middle School. I've heard stories of this sort of thing. Or blasting the car horn on the road when a gentle, polite beep will do the trick uh, when somebody is zoning at a green light. What we call punitive honking in the Seitz family. And by the way, I want to say this now. I think it's important to get out after 5 months. The Seitzes do not believe in punitive honking. Okay. We're very serious about that. Honking to prevent a crash, (laughs) absolutely. But punitive honking, as the Germans say, nein, okay? We won't do it. But again, when I get a question about, say, you know, why people wear death metal garb at Disneyland, I always answer by saying that person does not know the purpose of life. And I'm being funny with the boys and I'm being absolutely serious as well. The purpose of life is to become the joyful, productive, creator-celebrating son, or the joyful, productive, creator-celebrating daughter whom the creator made us to be. Well, the Gospels show us how to do that, and they do it by showing us how the Son of God lived. And by drenching our minds and imaginations in the gospel, you know what happens? We can learn how to live in a manner that matches our new identities as God's beloved and bought-back children. That's the third reason why we need the gospels. And they should be, uh, we should have a steady diet of them as we absorb God's word. We need the gospels because we need real and rich Meetups with the Messiah. You see, as Christians, we don't believe that the four gospels are merely historical accounts of Jesus' life or merely true historical accounts of Jesus' life. We believe that, but we believe they're more than that. We believe that the gospels are portals into his own presence. And that's true of the whole Word of God, but it's true in a special way with the Gospels. We need up-close and personal encounters with our King, our brother, our friend. We, we need to have close contact with Him, Jesus, to stay energized. And in the Gospels, in these stories, we can have those encounters. That's what they're for. Now, During our Galilee by Storm study, we're going to be introducing a specific way of reading individual stories in the Gospels, a way that complements our intuitive, uh, whatever strikes me approach, which is good in, in, uh, in a certain way. But for now, what I want to do, I want to share with you three more general Gospel reading tips, and I think these could be very helpful for you for this series and into the future when you read from the Gospels. Okay, first we need to read with the imagination switch flipped on. In other words, we need to read these stories that God has given us cinematically. And that means that as we read, say, for instance, the story of Jesus uh, from Luke chapter 5, healing the man uh, who's full of leprosy. When we do that, we mentally and we prayerfully place ourselves in the scene. We imagine that we're there, situating ourselves in different positions on the stage. For instance, first, you know we might imagine when we're reading the story that, that we're one of the disciples, watching the master interact with this guy. And then we might want to read it again, imagining this time that we're the leper himself. In short, we want to read these stories in such a way that we are experiencing them ourselves. We want to immerse ourselves in them and that requires God-given imagination. So we flip on the switch. Second, and I, I really like this one, we read with focus on form. With focus on form. What do we mean by that? The Gospels of course, are historical accounts. They're based on eyewitness testimony. At the same time, the Gospels are works of literature. And they are exquisite works of literature. And like any literary work, their meaning is lodged in their form and their style, one component of which is context. Now, the English majors... Uh, among our Hillside family, like Barbie Applegate here in the front row, and Clay Collins. I just learned he was an English major this past week. They've got a bit of an advantage over the rest of us because they're practiced in analyzing literature, okay? But we don't need English degrees like these two superstars to read the Gospels with attention to form or style. We just need to keep our eyes open to the way The gospel writers tell their stories, how they do it, not just what they say. And on this, let me just give you one very, very practical tip. The best way to read the gospels and scripture more broadly with attention to form, and part of form is context, is to work out of a real paper and ink Bible, not just a screen, because screens tend to to obscure context. Okay? So work out of a real Bible and mark it up with pencil. That will really, really help you. And lastly, one more general tip for reading the Gospels. We read with a resolve to respond. We go into them determined to obey whatever our king tells us to do through our encounter with him in the story. You know, one of the distinct themes of the gospels in general and one of the distinct themes of the Galilee by storm section, Luke 4 through 9 that we're taking on this fall, is Jesus's emphasis on hearing and doing. You see, the essence of being a disciple of Jesus, being a student of Jesus, is actually listening to what he says and trying do it. You know, one reason that believers can neglect the gospels, especially the first three, is that they're so full of demands. And at first, these demands seem sort of impossible. But here's the point. The life that Jesus led and the life that he calls us to in imitation of him, it can be lived. It really can. And as people who have been reborn, remade by God's grace— you know what we can do? We really can disarm our enemies by loving them rather than attacking them. We we really can provide refreshing cup of cold water experiences to the kids in our lives. We really can provide restitution to robbery victims like the good Samaritan as well as to others who've been the victims of injustice. We really can resist panic in stressful, fearful And we grow in these capacities through the gospels by by considering Jesus and then taking practical incremental steps in his direction. That's actually the essence of putting on and putting off, like we talked about in the Colossians 3 series over the last three weeks. But here's the point we can take these practical steps of Jesus imitation as the students of Jesus that we are, because post belief and baptism. We're new. We're new creations with new capacities and new ceilings. We can live the lives God intended for us to live. He's given us his spirit. And I love the way Donald Frisk puts it in his great little book about covenant church theology, a book called This We Believe. Listen to what he says. I wish I'd put it in your notes. Frisk writes, to be in Christ is to be incorporated into a new order of existence. It's to take one's place within the environment of Christ, to be in the sphere of his lordship and under his rule. I love this. It's to live within his power field. That's who you are. If you believe, you live within his power field now. You have new possibilities for imitating him and learning his way. we got 10 minutes left, maybe nine. So let's take a practice run, okay? Let's take one story from Luke four through nine, and let's do this together. Let's explore it imaginatively, attentively to its form and its context, and then with a posture of receptivity, being willing to do whatever it is that our king tells us to do through this study. Okay? And as our series is called Galilee by Storm, let's take the storm story from Luke 8 22. Let me read this to you. Let it, let it soak in. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Flip on your imagination. Switch. Luke tells us that once during those wild, exciting Galilee-by-storm days, Jesus suggests to the twelve that they cross to the other side of the lake. Now, Imagine. Imagine you're there. Imagine you're there when this suggestion comes. You know, you might not be too enthused. I mean, after all, Jesus has been running you around the region at a whirlwind pace. Maybe you were enjoying hanging back uh, on the bank a little bit. On the other hand, you've learned that Jesus is never boring wherever he goes. Something astonishing happens. People infected with spiritual viruses are cleansed. And wherever he goes, excluded people, friendless people are welcomed back into friend circles. Dead children are raised to life and given back to their dumbstruck parents. So maybe beneath your, 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 your groan, oh, here we go again. There's a glimmer of excitement of what you might experience. Luke says that they push off in their rickety wooden fishing boat and they start for the far shore. And then Luke actually says something that surprises us a bit. He tells us that Jesus falls asleep. Now, let's place ourselves there. Imagine that. Imagine what emotions the sight of Jesus sleeping might evoke in us. You know, by this point, we've seen him perform numerous superhuman feats. And now what are we seeing? We're seeing him curled up on the hard, splintery floor of the boat. And Maybe as we, we look at him, we notice to our surprise how genuinely human he looks. Even vulnerable, in a way, like every human being does when sleeping. And maybe when we gaze upon him, we're aware of this new love and appreciation welling up for this man. Now, obviously, very tired. Our teacher who breaks every mold. Well, first, according to Luke, the cruise is uneventful. But after a while, the wind kicks up. Now, let's imagine that. Imagine for a moment that we're actually one of the former fishermen in the group and in the boat. And, and being a tough fisherman, we're, we're not alarmed. And being a tough fisherman, even if we were alarmed, we wouldn't show it. After all, we have sailed this lake our whole lives. Now imagine that the wind begins blowing a whole lot harder. And the squall has become a full-blown storm. And all of a sudden, the waves are heaving the boat up and down, up and down, And the waves are smashing into the side, spilling right into the boat. Imagine what that would be like. Imagine if you were far enough out so you couldn't even see the side anymore. Imagine the terror. And now let's imagine that we're there, but actually we're not one of the former fishermen. Let's imagine that we're the former zealot, the freedom fighter, whom the Gospels say Jesus invited onto his team. And as that guy, we are completely terrified (laughs) because we're a landlubber, not a fisherman. And desperate for reassurance, we look into the faces of John and James and Peter, the pros, (laughs) to reassure ourselves that they have it under control. And all we see is terror there as well. Verse 23, Luke says that with the waves crashing over the side, the boat begins to fill with water. Imagine now that at this point a hopeful thought, one little hopeful thought, bubbles up. It is, it's Jesus, and we nearly forgotten him because he's been so quiet, sleeping in the stern. Jesus is here. It's not going to be all bad. But then, looking over, we see to our utter shock and disappointment that he still asleep and we think to ourselves he never sleeps or he never seems to sleep because he's always staying up so late at parties and then he's always getting up early to pray and then one time we remember him staying up all night to pray on the night that he chose us and the other 11 as his special protégés, and we think to ourselves of all times jesus to take a nap <laughs> why now Imagine now that more and more water is pouring into the boat. I mean, far faster than the disciples, your fellow disciples, can bail it out. At which point, and everybody recognizes it, the dam breaks on everyone's self-control. Everyone's composure, even the feigned nonchalance of these tough fishermen. And in verse 24, Luke writes that unable to control themselves, the disciples break. And they finally shake Jesus awake, and in sheer horror... They yell, Master, Master, we are dying. Immediately, Luke says, Jesus arises. He rebukes the howling wind and the raging waves, commanding them, he says, to be calm. And in that instant, the pounding sea becomes as smooth as a pond. At which point Jesus looks at them all and says, where's your faith? We should try to imagine what his face might, do it right now, imagine what his face would have looked like when his eyes met yours. After all you've seen, they seem to say, do you still not know who I am? Do you still not trust me? You know your scriptures, right? Who stills the sea? Psalm 65, 7. Who does that? Tellingly, it's only then, after Jesus saves them, only after that Luke explicitly says that the disciples are afraid. And in verse 25, Luke says that they marvel. And they begin asking each other, who is this? who gives orders to the wind and the water. But what do we learn from this story? What's the meaning of it? And more specifically, this is the better question. What do we learn about living as true sons and daughters of the king? I think one lesson that jumps right off the page, one that we've all heard maybe a thousand times if for church people, but one which we must keep being reminded of over and over again is that as sons and daughters of the king, We can maintain solid confidence and avoid panic in the worst of life's storms. And this is because Jesus, the Lord of the sea, he's always in the boat of our lives with us. And this means that we can resist panic. We can learn to stay calm in the middle of the night and I don't know when it happens for you, sometimes around three, when our worst fears just pass by our mind's eye like one evil sheep after another. And this is such good news because dread is so dreadful. And we never have to be distorted by it. We never even have to have our daily joy diminished by it. And it, you know, it's likely that this week we're all going to experience some kind of storm of fear. But you know, we can resist, we can resist the panic, we can maintain peace because Jesus the king, Jesus our king, is also Jesus the storm king, the one who is sovereign over all creation and its wild forces and he's able to pilot us to our destination. And I think there's more as well. You see, when we read this story with attention to form, a critical dimension of which, again, is context, meaning how this story fits into the whole Lucan story, we notice something very interesting. We notice that back in chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, Jesus also issued a rebuke. And he also issued a command, just like he does here. And in that story, the object of the rebuke wasn't a catastrophic windstorm but it was an evil spirit, Luke says. And then later on in chapter 8, Jesus again utters a command. Same word. And like the episode of chapter 4, the command here is directed to demons. And if we're reading these stories attentive to their context as the, the, the literary gems they are, I think we get a very surprising suggestion from this inspired writer. One that answers a question that I've actually had since I was a kid when I used to read this story. How could a lake, even a big one like Gennesaret, have waves that were big enough to capsize a boat? And even though I've since learned that the Sea of Galilee does, in fact, get extremely rough, wildly rough, I kind of always wondered whether the story was plausible. You know, could lake waves really be as big as Luke says or as Rembrandt depicted them in his famous painting of the scene. But what if Luke is telling us that this was no ordinary windstorm? What if Luke, in specifying that Jesus rebukes the storm here in our story, just like he rebuked the unclean spirit in Luke 4.35, and just like he rebuked the fever in Luke 4:39 and just like he rebuked the demon in Luke 9:42 what if Luke is telling us that something else stands behind this storm something more than just natural meteorological forces and if that's what he's saying it leads us to ask what if our tests our own trials the things that are facing us they have a cosmic dimension even a demonic dimension that we've never really considered. And then what if by persevering through them, not giving up, staying focused on Jesus, we're actually living into the victory over those forces that Jesus has already won in principle and even advancing it in our own little way. Here's the point. Do you see how reading very carefully, mindful of context, can actually be the path to deeper meaning, meaning through which Jesus the King speaks and guides and even expands our grasp of reality? And friends, over the last couple of weeks, I've spent a lot of time immersing myself in this story, cinematically, immersing myself in it like I'm encouraging us all to do. And this is what I sense the God of Jesus Christ is saying to me. And this is what I wrote in my own journal. Dan, until I complete my creation rescue project, your faith will be tested. Tested by ordinary challenges and even tested by events whipped up by cosmic forces of darkness. These are storms that I allow for my ultimate purposes which include your training in trust and perseverance. Your job, my beloved son, in whatever test you face, is to trust me and to avoid panic so that you can give courage to others. You see, I'm in the boat of your life with you, and you can count on me to get you to shore. What did God say to you as you lived this story? What will he say to you in future Galilee by storm stories over the course of this fall? Let me pray. Father, we are excited to relive your son's tornado tour through Galilee this fall. And like those who saw and experienced His healings and teaching, we are ready to marvel and to be astonished at His glory, His glory as your eternal Son, and His glory as the true human being. And Father, as a a family, we ask that you would make this series, this Galilee by Storm series, significant in all of our lives. And we ask that it would be the occasion for significant building up of this body in faith as we live and we learn together. And we pray this in confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.